Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Mark Shaman, a seven-time Oscar nominee whose credits across film, musical theater, and television include Sister Act, When Harry Met Sally, The Addams Family, Mary Poppins Returns, as well as the iconic 2002 musical, Hairspray, for which Mark won Tony and Grammy Awards. Back in 1976, Shaman crossed paths with Scott Whitman, also a Tony winner and an Oscar nominee, and over time the two began a regular collaboration on projects that include Hairspray, Mary Poppins Returns, and NBC's TV show Smash. Recently, they wrote together a song titled Save the City from the fictitious Marvel Cinematic Universe Broadway production of Rogers the Musical featured in the first episode of the Disney Plus series, Hawkeye. In today's conversation, the 62-year-old called in from his New York studio to discuss his career in music. How a simple songwriting audition turned into him and Scott writing the musical Hairspray and what it was like for the show to open on Broadway shortly after 9-11, a deep dive into the making of one of my favorite films from 2018, Mary Poppins Returns, a direct sequel to the 1964 classic. From Mark's emotional relationship to the musical legacy of the original movie, why it was important for Emily Blunt's version of Mary Poppins not to sing anything that had been made iconic by Julie Andrews. Also, Mark and Scott's creative process writing songs for film and stage, from the blank page to the final recording, all of this and much more. If you enjoyed the show, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes of the podcast. We'd love to ask you to support us by leaving us a review on iTunes or share your favorite episode with a friend. Please, take a moment to do it as it makes a really big difference. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Mark, thank you so, so much for taking the time to join us. It's really exciting. I thought we could start, you know, talking about your early experience in musical theater because you didn't really have a formal training except for some piano lessons. So we could say that your experience as a musical director in community theater kind of functioned as a training ground. You know, when you're listening to original cast albums and you're breaking down books and music sheets, that kind of allows you to understand arrangement on an instrument specific level. So why do you think orchestration in a way was the best way for you into the world of music? And how does being a good orchestrator make you a better composer? Wow. Um, well, first of all, congratulations. I can tell from your question that you've actually listened or read to other interviews I've done, which is nice in that I sometimes do these things and I find myself explaining who I am and what I've done and just thinking, why did I say yes to this schmuck? <laughs> You're off to a good start. Thank you. And now if I could only remember your question. Well, orchestration, it turns out, Although I learned from all those cast albums when I got the uh, piano vocals, when I did the shows and you get the actual piano vocal that has the real 
guts of the music for the show. And so I could listen to the cast album and really then I now, you know, it had the flute line there and, and I learned so much. And then film scoring turns out to be so much about orchestration. Film composing is orchestrating to a great extent, even though you, you bring in orchestrators, you know, the use of which instrument and the textures is so much a part of the emotion of film scoring. Although I learned all that stuff from shows, I actually think it actually um, helped me when I suddenly started scoring movies, but I'm, I'm jumping ahead. Your early time in New York and working in Saturday Night Live, and it kind of brings you to meet people like Martin Short and Bette Midler and Billy Crystal. So just jumping ahead a, a few years, I know that Billy Crystal was the one who eventually in 88 kind of recommended you to Rob Reiner to arrange some music for When Harry Met Sally. And just to give context to people, in a, in a span of a couple of years, you score Misery, which is definitely not what you would imagine for a theater guy like yourself to, to be the first score, Adam's Family, City Slickers, Few Good Men and Sister Act. And I was thinking back and I was like, I wonder for Mark, you know, how does scoring such a wide range of genres in these first few years, how does that shape up your understanding of film music and making sure you're not boxed into one genre only? Well, eventually I was boxed in, but um, I was really lucky that those first few years, particularly because of Rob Reiner, who every project would choose a different kind of genre to make his movie. So through him, you know, when Harry met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, they're so completely different. And that was great. The Adams Family, Sister Act, those are movies that were great for me because they did lean into my theatrical side. And although neither of them are musicals, they both ended up becoming musicals that I didn't get to write. But uh, those movies were practically musicals. And um it was great to be able to work in all those genres. And um, I learned about the music for those kind of movies, you know, specifically from the temp scores that were created for the movies. You know, you have to listen to them and you try not to copy them. And eventually, after a few years, you become very frustrated with them because the way directors want you to basically recreate the temp score and like, why isn't there an oboe when she touches the doorknob like there is in the temp score? But in those first few years, that was my version of college, really studying like Jerry Goldsmith cues that they had cut into misery for the temp score and really listening to the textures and how orchestral composing is, it's not just songwriting, you know, the strings may be clustering, doing something there. And while the low brass is doing something completely else and, and in between, you know, there's so many different things happening at once. And I, that was, I remember a real enlightening moment of listening to all that and really understanding, oh, I see there's like a very large palette here. And I just did my best to come close. So I, I, I couldn't imitate to the point of plagiarism because I wasn't capable of imitating to the point of plagiarism. But I certainly learned as much as I could. And the same thing happened on City Slickers. You know, they had an awful lot of Elmer Bernstein Western music in there.
I don't want to get ahead of myself because I know we're going to be talking in depth about Mary Poppins Returns, but I was curious to ask you about the process of Rob Marshall, the director. For the project, you wrote a lot of music before a single frame of film had even been shot, and that then becomes the temp underscore as they're assembling the movie. What's your experience with temp music in general? I have no memory of ever receiving a movie that didn't have a temp score attached to it. Like you said, Mary Poppins Returns had music I wrote for Mary Poppins Returns in the temp score in that Rob had me write some cues before he started filming. And that's a whole other story. Otherwise, no, it's always there. And it's a matter of listening as little as you can so that you don't find yourself completely, oh my God, I've just totally ripped off the temp score cue. But learning from it as a, as a way of having a conversation with the director about why he ended up choosing the music that's in the temp score. And it is like the ultimate icebreaker of the conversation of trying to know what he liked. And of course, you can say, you know, I'm going to try something completely different from this. But usually if you do that, you should also come up with something that is close in style so that you may be giving a director, you know, a choice. Allow me to ask you a couple questions about Hairspray. For a non-American like myself, I grew to realize that the famous Hairspray musical as we know it is based on the John Waters film, but it was really introduced to popular culture the way it is today thanks to the 2002 musical that you and Scott Whitman, who's your co-lyricist, created. And then, of course, later in 2007, the film with uh, John Travolta as well. So they approach you and they ask you to create you know, just write a couple songs, basically audition for the job. And I know that among the ones you wrote are Good Morning Baltimore and Welcome to the 60s, which are still tentpoles of the show today. So for you and Scott, why do you think sometimes the first attempts to a song remain untouched and make it into the final work? And for others, you have to go through a hundred iterations of it. Well, I think on Hairspray, it was just blessed. We were such a perfect match for writing it. You know, one would think that your initial thoughts writing something should be the most pure, perfect reaction to what you're working on. But so often, at least in musicals, some of the original songs that one writes end up all in the trunk as you start to discover, oh, we need this to happen or repeating itself or for whatever reason. It is unusual that on Hairspray, just everything we wrote really stuck to the wall and anything that we wrote that isn't in the show was our own choosing of like, you know what, we're spending too much time in this for pace. Heartbreakingly, let's lose this song or that song. In the movie, we got to reinstate one or two songs that we had written while writing for Broadway, just because the slight differences between them. And in the movies, you can have a scene that is not about how do we get that set on. So you have some more options there. But that has never happened since. I mean, you know, other musicals we've written, you just go through a lot of songs. Hey there, teenage Baltimore. Don't change that channel, because it's time for the Corny Collins Show. Brought to you by Ultra Clutch Hairspray. Oh, every afternoon when the clock strikes four. 
you know, Hairspray wasn't the first musical you and Scott wrote, and it's definitely not going to be the last one, I hope. But it sounds like the show came about at the right time. It was a post 9-11 New York. I think people were pretty much ready to allow themselves to have fun on the stage. I wonder from the style to the setting, because of the amount of work that you and Scott had done before, why do you think this one clicked and happened in a way that the other ones didn't? Well, it was better than anything we had written before. I mean, we were very young when other shows that Scott and I wrote. I also wrote with a bunch of other people. I think I wrote like four or five musicals between the time I was 18 and like 27 or something. And none of them took off. And then I went to L.A. and had my film scoring career. And when Hairspray came along, we were just older and smarter and had more experience. And we were matched up with the perfect story for us. You know, John Waters' story in his movie Hairspray, the characters and the story just sang. So it just seemed easy. And I mean, Scott and I love John Waters, so we were disciples of his style of humor. Meaning, I mean, we had the same sense of humor. And then when you suddenly realize there's this man making these movies, oh my God, you know, you can go and enjoy them with other people who also have that same twisted sense of humor. Hairspray being his most mainstream movie that didn't have anywhere near the shocking kind of things that are in most of his films. But, you know, the storyline and the characters were just gold. And once we were able to actually put music and lyrics into their mouths, it just took off. And the themes are, unfortunately, still as timely as ever. And as you mentioned, it was very shortly after 9-11 and... I think The Producers was the first show that had already just opened, but The Producers, you know, people ran to it after 9-11 as like the first way to kind of have a different experience in the theater for three hours than what we were all living through. And Hairspray came, you know, not shortly after that, and it was the same kind of thing. This feeling of joy and celebration was something that people needed to experience. I would like to spend a healthy amount of our conversation, if possible, talking about Mary Poppins Returns. I wanted to begin by talking about the legacy of the original movie and your love for the Sherman Brothers' work. The Sherman Brothers composed the music for the original. Quote, I learned everything about songwriting, arranging, orchestrating, and writing for film from the Mary Poppins soundtrack. For the first 18 years of my life, that was my school. Close quote. So, on a creative level, even before meeting Richard Sherman, I wonder how did your familiarity with the album evolve over the last 60 years as you were able to kind of study and break down the musical choices they had made? The music and lyrics to Mary Poppins and the orchestrations by Erwin Kostel and his own compositional skills scoring the movie. I mean, that was just how I entered into listening to music. What was I, four years old, I guess, when the movie came out? So I, you know, had that album can a four-year-old pick up a needle and put on an album? I guess I did. And um, I just listened to it endlessly. And it's just so witty and wonderful and so catchy, of course. I mean, that's something I couldn't come close to, the Sherman Brothers and their catchiness. I mean, I was afraid, I think, even to try that it would sound like we're trying so hard to be them that I tried not to like, well, I don't know. I'm going off on a tangent um, of, of regret. But um my musical DNA comes from that album and that movie. I knew I literally had to get that job 
because I, I didn't know how I could possibly live if I didn't get that job. And to be able to both write the songs with Scott and then be able to score the movie. As I've mentioned in other interviews, I'm sure many director has left a recording session with me and wondering, why is this guy scoring my movie like it's fucking Mary Poppins? So now finally I was scoring a movie with Mary Poppins in it. And, and so all that... Those certain chords, like this is... I know I was on other movies and I was nudged like my orchestra and it's like, oh, wasn't that very Mary Poppins that moment there? I, I put that chord in there. So it was just so great for all of us to get to now finally work in this. All my orchestrators, we all got to live out our childhood fantasies because we all were basically the same age and we all had the same affection for every aspect of Mary Poppins, not just the melodies and the lyrics, but, but the orchestral sound. You began your work on the movie with a three, four month process in a room with yourself, Scott, David McGee, the writer, John DeLuca, the producer, and Rob Marshall, the director. And you guys kind of, which is amazing to hear, you bounced ideas and kind of discovered the movie as you went. Quote, we scanned through the original Mary Poppins books to find moments that we can musicalize. So many of the adventures just cried out to be sung, close quote. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about this creative process of picking out moments from these eight P.L. Traver books and ultimately understanding, you know, both musically and lyrically, what did or didn't belong to this new chapter. Those few months of collaborating of us all in the hotel room were really, really great. They came into it knowing that they wanted Michael Banks to be a recent widower and he was having trouble being a, a parent. And so Mary Poppins comes, it seems, to help with his children, but in fact, she's really still coming back for Jane and Michael Banks. Mary Poppins. Close your mouth, please, Michael. We are still not a codfish. <coughs> Jane Banks, still rather inclined to giggle, I see. Good heavens, it really is you. You seem hardly to have aged at all. Really? How incredibly rude. One never discusses a woman's age, Michael. Would have hoped I taught you better. I'm sorry, I didn't You came back. I thought we'd never see you again. It is wonderful to see you. Yes, it is, isn't it? And we just created the story from scratch and with every moment of like, where would the song go and what would happen in the plot that would mean this or that. And um, going through all the different adventures and certainly understanding why they had chosen the adventures they chose in the first movie. And sometimes the adventures they went on informed our songs, not in a completely literal fashion, with the biggest example being when it was time for us to write the lullaby for Mary Poppins to sing to the kids after they have, for the first time, mentioned how much they miss their mother. And so Mary Poppins has to soothe them in a way and yet speak of death, I mean, speak of loss in a way that a young child can understand and actually be comforted with. And Scott remembered that there was another story in another book, because there was nothing in, in the Mary Poppins books about, you know, losing your mother or anything like that. 
But he remembered that in one adventure, Mary Poppins takes the kids and one of their friends to visit her uncle, who happens to be the man in the moon. And at one point, the man in the moon says to the kids' friends, oh, you know that, I can't remember what it was. He says, but that thing that you lost, I have it. It's here on the, on the, on the back side of the moon, the dark side of the moon. It's where I keep all the things that everyone loses. And so he gives him back this keepsake, whatever it is, I can't remember. And so Scott said, well, how about that? as our way into the song without ever mentioning the man in the moon as her uncle or anything, but just this idea that the things that you lose still exist and they're there for you. If you know where to look, you can still be in touch or feel these things that you've lost. And so that led us into writing the place where lost things go. Oh, listen to the three of you, you're all worrying far too much. After all, you can't lose what you've never lost. I don't understand. Well, do you ever lie awake at night just between the dark and the morning light searching for the things you used to know looking for the place where the lost things go So that was one example. You know, there was another thing that one time Mary... She takes them to the, a zoo where animals are the people looking at humans in the cages. And it turns out they tried to do it in the first movie. And they wrote a, a cute song called The, uh, the Chimpanzee. And we wrote a song before we knew that they had written anything for the first movie. We wrote The Anthropomorphic Zoo. And in a strange coincidence, both movies ended up not using this concept of the zoo. Cause now we're here. It's grand. The paws a hand. It's the anthropomorphic zoo. The snakes are all in bliss as the politicians hiss at the anthropomorphic zoo. I know that you ended up replacing it with the Royal Dalton musical. Right. Which was a, that was a little heartbreak because that was a good song, the other version. And, and, and we had met with the animators and everything and, and had really fleshed it out. So it was just a shame to not get to do it. But um, all's well and ends well. There's no denying that people may notice that there's a mirroring structure to the original film in regards to you know how the songs fit within the larger scope of the movie. And it's not a conscious effort, correct me if I'm wrong, that you guys are doing. It's simply the way these books are told. In typical Mary Poppins reverse psychology fashion, we have Can You Imagine That, which is, you know, Mary talking the children into doing something they don't want to do, which kind of feels like a spoonful of sugar. Stay Awake, which I know is one of your favorite songs, kind of feels like Place Where the Lost Things Go. Let's Go Fly a Kite plays us out like Nowhere to Go But Up and on and on and on. But I'm, I'm just trying to list this by, by saying that I think in regards to this new one subconsciously echo the emotional memory that people have with the first movie. You talked about how you you musically mapped out the film. Could you talk about wanting to reprise and include the original Sherman Brothers tunes in thematic material, but never in song form? Was that a conversation that happened? Oh, yes, most certainly. And that was really always our intention. I mean, we certainly weren't going to ask Emily Blunt to sing a song that Julie Andrews had sung. I mean, that just would have been mean and cruel. I mean, Emily Blunt is her own person. And it's already the comparisons would be so, you know, you know you're going into it, how we're all going to get compared. 
But we wanted our own song score to live on its own. I mean, Rob Marshall, you know, he's the, the as director, he most definitely wanted that to be that we were writing our own original musical. But we also knew through underscoring, we could make use of the melodies of the original song score just at the right moments. And it really doesn't happen mostly until like the last 20 minutes of the movie. And that was a thrill for me to get to do that. Although, yeah, there is one that no one ever seems to notice in um, the first song, Underneath the Lovely London Sky. I do, uh, it's a, it's a root. song a man has dreamed you know mr banks's song that ends up being a beautiful ballad in the last half of the original film i play that melody when the first time that we see cherry lane Hearing it as a waltz, I think it only entered people's subconscious. They didn't maybe even realize, oh, that melody is the same melody that we heard Mr. Banks singing as he came home. I've always loved doing that in scoring. I've been very happy to be working on movies that had thematic material already because I'm an arranger at heart also, you know, and I love doing that, taking something and figuring out how to arrange it differently. The Adams Family movie, certainly figuring out ways to make use of the TV theme in, in grand and glorious new fashion. I love that. So just finding those perfect little spots was a lot of fun. I mean, we talk a lot about the songs themselves, but I, I would love to ask you a little bit about the overture, talking about thematic material. Quote, once Scott and I suggested we write a song for Michael Banks, we realized that the movie was going to start with two ballads, and so the overture really became important to Rob, Rob being Rob Marshall, the director. We wanted to give the audience a bump of adrenaline and to go between the gentleness of London Sky and Michael Banks's A Conversation, close quote. Could you talk about in general about the importance of overtures and how this new Mary Poppins is influenced not only by the first movie, but you also mentioned Oliver and My Fair Lady? Yeah, although I don't remember with Oliver, My Fair Lady, if it was like what you just described, where our overture was not just so that we could have an overture because it's so in the style of the great musicals of the 60s that did have these overtures, but that we needed it for the adrenaline pump in between these two ballads. I can't remember when the overtures start on some of those other movies. Is it slightly after the first scene? I don't remember. But that was just a great thing that still happened. Even main titles, it was so nice to have a main title. Nowadays, I so miss main titles in movies, that chance to kind of give one the flavor of the movie and kind of set the scene. You know, I miss that in all movies, that it just jumps right to the story and we don't get that moment to kind of just be lured into it by way of the main title. Let me ask you about Can You Imagine That? Quote, Can You Imagine That is technically the first time Mary Poppins has sung on screen in 54 years. Once we stopped being scared of the legacy of A Spoonful of Sugar, we started to write with that same rhythm, and now we use the song as the main theme almost throughout on a melodic level. Later in the movie, we slow it down, put a slightly different chords to it, and create a whole new feeling of melancholy, close quote. We wrote many other songs before we wrote that song, and we're very much trying to stay away from that kind of feeling, the groove of 
spoonful of sugar. You know, once again, just trying to not create a noose for ourselves to be hung by. Each song that we wrote, you know, Rob would come back to us and say, I like it, but I wonder if it could be this or that. And one song that we wrote for it got very far through that journey, right up until they were doing screen tests of the underwater special effects. And that's when he came back to us and said, you know, we all love this song. What was it called? Uh, Stuff and Nonsense. And it had a kind of 1930s swing to it. But he said, you know, every time we keep referring to it, we don't specifically sing one line. And so we're wondering, do we need that kind of song that just has a, a, a title that you, can you imagine that? It's just, you immediately just sing the melody of it with the title. And at that point, we just stopped worrying about comparisons and we found ourselves in that same rhythm. Some people like to dive right in. Can you imagine that? And flap about in bathtub gin. Can you imagine that? Doggies paddling 20 leagues below might seem real, but we know it's not so. And then after we wrote that song, and I usually sing it myself and make a little home demo, Scott very smartly said, you know what? Can you play it like it's score? Because if we can show that the song also could become underscore, that'll really get them. So I sat down and... Just played it, you know, with richer chords and stuff underneath it. And we sent it off together. And that was the kind of the bullseye that everyone said, yes, that's it. You just talked about Scott Whitman. And, and I wanted to just for a second ask you about your creative process writing songs together. What I think is interesting in regards to you creating storytelling through music is that sometimes the underscore doesn't have the lyrics to kind of help you and expose that intention. Could you talk about how you guys try to write lyrics that, as you described, sometimes are in the right neighborhood, but not quite the address, so to speak, and how getting so deep into writing lyrics sometimes inspires you to find the right music? I think Hairspray music and lyrics probably came at the same time. Scott really can't proceed with writing until, obviously, we figure out what is the song going to be about and what does it need to accomplish but also coming up with a title that kind of says that, you know, and lays out for both the audience and for Scott and I as writers, like, what are we writing here? So once we have a title, then um, we just jump in. But more and more, we started writing the lyrics totally first, which I'm going to try to stop with in the future and get back to being at the piano, because I think sometimes they, might, they may get too lyrically dense, and then the music is playing second fiddle to the lyrics. But um, you know, we just talk about what is the song. We start trading phrases, like word association, like Scott will say a phrase that'll make me think of, oh yeah, then there's this phrase. And you look up idioms and there are these great books that are just thesauruses for, you know, if you look up circus, you just get every word having to do with the circus. And, you know, it just makes you think of other things. So suddenly there's just many pieces of paper with all these different phrases or, or words, which I used to scotch tape to the piano. Now we have <laughs> clips that you can't see, but I have like a clothesline on my piano that I clip the pages to. And I just stare at it and, and wait to see what phrase might musicalize itself. And then once I have that, then we really sit down and we write almost a dummy lyric first, 
like what you mentioned, like it's in the neighborhood, but it's not the right address yet. And then we really sit down and we figure out the right address. Now when you're stuck in the mist, sure, you can struggle and resist, or you can trip a little like fantastic with me. Now say you're lost in the crowd, well, you can stamp and scream out loud, or you can trip a little like fantastic with me. I mean, sometimes with just the title, I'll write a whole other song and then tell Scott, come back in. And so some of the lyrics I've written end up staying. And for the most part, the two of us keep chipping away at the dummy lyrics that I wrote that are literally just nonsense because it's just following a melody. And we figure it out. And lyric writing is just so much more interesting to me of how you got to start from here and you know where you got to get to. And how do you get there and make it all perfect rhymes and you know make all the syllables hit the right way and i just love the craft of that so much my last question about mary poppins returns regards your experience recording the soundtrack you had three weeks on the scoring stage and on any given day you could be working with anywhere from a 80 to 100 piece orchestra how do you work with your engineers to extract the best sounding version of a soundtrack and much like a director judges the best take of a scene how do you choose the best take of a music performance? Oh, you just know. I mean, you know, half of it is, did anyone hit any wrong notes? And then it becomes very easy to know, well, we can't use that. I mean, nowadays, it's so limitless, the way that one can digitally edit. You can go back and forth between multiple takes. And Andrew, our engineer, was such a genius at it. Oh, my Lord. He was so good. I mean, sometimes we cut the songs with the singers live and I'd get into the mixing studio and I was still like, you know what? I wish she had taken a, a split second longer before singing that or vice versa. You know, I wish we got there a little faster. And He could go in there and stitch out or stitch in by overlapping. And it's just crazy what one can do nowadays. I mean, I guess it used to be easier when there were less choices, but I'm happy to have those choices. I was so happy to have Andrew. And I was so happy to have this brilliant orchestra in England. So I don't think there literally ever was a moment where we couldn't use a take because of anything having to do with the musicians. They were just brilliant from beginning day to end. And the fact that they seemed to be enjoying themselves playing the score was, you know, icing on the cake especially for the Brits who don't definitely show their emotions or uh, their joy necessarily when there's a job to be done. But I finally got some smiles out of them. And that was very therapeutic. The times with the orchestras recording Mary Poppins Returns were definitely the great highlight. I mean, I, I say that, and yet I can think of some other highlights that were all in, about what we recorded. But, you know, seeing and hearing it up on the screen for the first times, I definitely had a few moments of just absolute emotional loss of just being, I don't want to say inconsolable. It sounds like I'm sad, but like I couldn't even speak through the sobs of my emotional reaction to it actually suddenly being a real thing. You obviously are a very melody-driven composer, and I think we both can agree that themes are a very powerful musical device to kind of remind audiences of their relationships going on in the story. And I wonder why do you think melody-driven scores work on such a subconscious level? And clearly, I mean, we talked about, can you imagine that, but it could apply to anything. Do you try to write melodies that work just as well when played in different keys or tempos and arrangements? 
I don't know that I think about it so much. It just sort of happens. I mean, I think with all my film scores, I was always thinking about, well, if this was a character in a musical, what would his his or her first song sound like? What would what would they sing? So there are a few themes, I think, in movies, if I look back, that actually I might have had a lyric or two in my head as I was writing the melody. And luckily, my big time in movie scoring was just almost sort of the tail end of melodic film music being at the forefront. It became much more texture-driven since then, which just isn't my thing. And of course, there still are movies that have some great melodies and themes to it, but it's more about the overall sound and texture and rhythms come to dictate film scoring more than melodies. I think it's like verboten, like, oh, don't have a strong melody like that. It's, it's too old-fashioned. But, you know, can you think of Gone with the Wind without... Fun question before my final one. Aliens arrived on Earth and they can only take home one Mark Shaman score to listen to on on the drive back. Which one would you hand them over and why? As much as my emotional attachment to Mary Poppins returns, as strong as that is, I'd have to say Hairspray. You know, there are other parts of me that are less buoyant, less joyful. God knows I'm actually a rather pessimistic person, but I think. Hairspray represents the best part of me, the person I want to be, both musically and lyrically, and and also about the themes of the show. So I'd be very happy to be represented by that on Alien Nations. My final question for today, it regards your legacy. Quote, writing music and writing lyrics are the only skill set I have. Give me a rhyming dictionary and a piano and I'll be happy. That's what I was meant to do. Close quote. So I wonder what have the last 45 years in the business taught you about your musical identity as a composer? And what is the conversation like with yourself in regards to all the great work you've produced and all the great work you're still looking to produce? I don't know. I'm just doing the best I can is all I can really say. That's, that's, I'm doing the best I can. I mean, I've been kicked a lot in the last 15 years with many reviews of shows or movies using the word unmemorable have been in there a lot. So you are speaking to someone who feels rather wounded by that. So I'm happy to hear what everything that you've been saying, but I, I, to be honest, I do feel wounded over that particular word. And so that's why I'm analyzing, well, gee, should I not write lyrics with Scott first? Is that what's wrong? Should I be at the piano at all times so that a hook dictates the lyric as much as just what the characters are thinking and feeling? To me, I say forget all those reviews. I'm sorry they stuck with you, but I could not disagree more. Mark, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. I try to put in some work so we could have a, a creatively induced conversation. I'm grateful for your time because I know you're busy. Well, thanks for doing all that homework. I really appreciate that. And there you have it, folks. Thank you to Mark for calling in to record this episode. To his assistant, Sam, who helped us set this all up and to my dear friend Eric for taking care of the final mixing. Mark's next project is the Judd Apatow-produced comedy Bros, from the director of Neighbors and Forgetting Sarah Marshall, with a film scheduled for a release in 2022. 
If you enjoy our program, please help us by subscribing to the show and leaving a review. It really helps cinephiles and new listeners discover the podcast. I'm Brando Benetton, and you have been listening to Soundstage Access.